Good morning, everybody. Yeah, if you're new here, welcome again. My name's Evan, like Jake said. My wife, Sandy, and I, we love you. We love the leadership team we serve with. We have the joy of leading Park Hill Church. Um, So if you can, get those Bibles that are being passed out, open your phone Bibles, whatever, to 1 Corinthians 6. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. In a moment, Michael Gray, he's gonna read the scriptures in a moment. Um, But we're nearing the finish line of this series, okay? 10 weeks, future church. We're looking at eight challenges that you and I both face in our time and how the way of Jesus gives us practices. Jesus gives us a way to live that orients us us away from the gravitational pull of destructive parts of culture and toward his life-giving kingdom. And so we've talked about, just recap, Orthodoxy, you have that slide, orthodoxy in a culture of ideology through practicing scripture. We've talked about peacemaking in a culture of political division through practicing hospitality and several other things, you guys. And the long-term goal is that we, as a church, would all share a rule of life. Remember that, we've talked about a rule of life. It comes from the idea of a trellis in a vineyard. How many of you have seen a vineyard, Walk through a vineyard? Jesus said he is the vine in the vineyard and we're the branches. And as we live in Jesus, we'll bear fruit. But from the earliest days of the church, Jesus followers realized vines don't just grow on their own. They don't just grow in any direction. Every vine needs a trellis to hang on to. And then the fruit comes. That's what a rule of life is for followers of Jesus. It's a set of practices that we, by the power of the Spirit, commit to. It's like, hey, you're from Park, we're from Park. Hey, we here at this church, we, this is how we follow Jesus as a community. We read scripture, we gather in community groups, like you just heard. We practice silence and solitude. We intentionally Sabbath one day a week. This is what we do to bear fruit together by the Spirit's power. This is the trellis that we, as a vine, hang on to with Christ so we can experience love, joy, peace, patience, all the fruit that comes from the presence of God. And so next up today, we're talking about becoming a community of holiness in a culture of moral relativism through the practice of fasting. (laughs) And so if that sounds like three sermons, it's because it is, but it's all in one today. Uh, Three sermons in one, uh, but you'll, you'll hear how it all works together by the end, hopefully. So to kick us off, Michael Gray, give it up for Michael. He's going to read the scripture text. This is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. I have the right to, to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in the body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord 
is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are, are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come now? You're already here. We just want to show up to you and what you want to do through us, through our bodies, and through this whole body of the church. Have your way, even if it means our way falls at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1981, Harvard political scientist Samuel Huntington made a prediction that America would hit a moral convulsion. And that's a sudden violent shift in society by the year 2020. So that was 40 years ago, he predicted. Why did he make this prediction? Because according to Huntington, they come every, these convulsions, they come every 60 years, the last one being MLK and the civil rights, and before that, the Reconstruction era and so forth. And so each moral convulsion was marked by common features. Every 60 years, this happens, he says. It's widespread sense of moral decline, check. Widespread distrust of institutions and contempt for those in power, check, right? A new generation comes along with a moral passion to make the world better. As they come to power, that generation, they change the moral landscape of the nation, but after a tough fight. And just as Huntington predicted, we are going through this, you guys. America is becoming both moral, more moral, <laughs> and less moral. Both more moral and more immoral at the same time. That's what we're experiencing right now. We're getting more moral around human rights, right? The outcry after George Floyd last year. That outcry, that reckoning was a long time coming. And for a lot of our generation, it started in 2014 with the killing of Eric Garner and Michael Brown. But for our nation, that has been mounting for 400 years of injustice. So we're becoming more moral in human rights. We're also becoming less moral at the same time, pick your poison. Infidelity is up, lying, misinformation is up, even cruelty to animals is astronomically up. But of course, the main thing that comes to mind is the sexual revolution on the left and the huge breakdown of integrity on the right, right? The only way to make sense of this paradox is that we're getting both more moral and more immoral the only way to make sense of this is that we live in a culture of moral relativism, right? Paul wrote to a similar culture. Here's that first verse of the passage. Look at verse 12. Paul's writing, and he's quoting the culture of his day, saying, I have the right to do anything, you say. That's moral relativism. But he answers, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything leads to your flourishing, and he quotes them again, I have the right to do anything. Follow my heart. But Paul says, but I, I, I won't be mastered or enslaved by anything. So according to Paul, he's saying, yes, in a sense, you're free to do whatever you want. Of course, you're an autonomous individual in a way, but the way the universe works, there are many things we want 
that do not lead to our flourishing. And, and the second thing he says, actually, the freedom to do whatever you feel, to follow your heart, that freedom is actually the pathway to enslavement. Or in his words, being mastered by your own cravings. So according to Paul and Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, you and I can become enslaved by our own cravings and desires as we redefine what's right and wrong in the name of personal freedom and self-expression. And you guys, the culture we live in is the perfect environment for growing this kind of mindset right now, isn't it? Like this is a culture of moral relativism. And the bottom line assumption of moral relativism is that there is no creator or creation. That's the bottom line assumption. There's no creator, no creation. There's no intentional design from a loving trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, that created you for loving relationships like him. There's no intentionality there at all. Nope, it's just survival of the fittest, folks. And our bodies are just sacks of meat held together by calcium sticks, as I read online. That's that's prevailing view. We're just sacks of meat, uh, wet machines, one philosopher calls us, held together by sticks of calcium. And the person you really are in culture now, you're not your body. The person you really are is in your mind. And your body is a separate thing. It's a tool. It's separate from who you are as a person. It's a tool that frees you up to use your own body as a pleasure machine. This is the dominant worldview right now, which is why most people here in, our, in the West, on both the left and the right, and an increasing number of younger Christians are living by a moral code that basically says, follow your heart as long as nobody's hurt. And the message underneath that is what? Your inner feelings, your gut desires, they will tell you what's right and wrong and guide you to happiness. That's the... That's the assumption. And follow your heart, it sounds great. It sounds like Pinocchio, when you wish on a star, everything your heart desires. It kind of goes way back into Disneyland for us. Uh, and, it's, and there's an element that's, that's very inspiring there for sure. But the tricky part about follow your heart is that your heart <laughs> is a mixed bag of complexity and contradictions, good intentions and sins and well-meaning all mixed up together. If you don't believe me, just stand in the grocery store aisle for, a, for one second and you'll see washboard abs here. You're like, I want that. My heart wants to get in shape. I have every intention to work out. And then you see top 10 vegan comfort food recipes. I want this. I'm gonna take this home and cook this with Sandy for the next two weeks. But those two desires from my heart are at war, you guys. Uh, our hearts are a mixed bag. Not to mention we're influenced by our environment all the time, not just our desires. And so there's a problem with follow your heart. <laughs> and there's also a problem with that second part, as long as it doesn't hurt someone. Here's the problem with that. Hurt or harm requires a definition. We need to define what is helpful and what is harmful, what is good and what is evil. We need to know what those are. And the million dollar question is, who gets to say? Who says what is good for my body or yours? We've all heard the phrase, love is love, right? Love is love, which is actually a powerful emotional argument in support of non-traditional romantic relationships, right? But after five seconds of critical thought, love is love still leaves us wondering what love is. 
doesn't explain anything. And the reality is for society to agree on the meaning of love, hate, harm, this would require some ultimate standard of moral authority. Saying this is what love looks like and not that. This is what harm and help look like. We need, we need a standard if we're gonna share language. But our culture rejects the idea of a standard, an ultimate moral authority that exists outside our minds. Uh, and so instead, what do we appeal to? Our, uh, we, we see this on university campuses or in books. We, we often appeal to either naturalism or emotivism. And so for naturalism, what is that? Survival of the fittest, right? Only the strong survive. Survival of the fittest. So in naturalism, question, is discrimination wrong? Just answer this in your mind. Is it wrong to discriminate based on sex, ethnicity, gender, or religion? However you answer that, I promise you didn't get your answer from survival of the fittest. Even, even Yuval Harari, if you've read the book Sapiens, fantastic read. It is so naturalist and so modernist, so atheist, but it's a page turner. Uh, Yuval Harari, one of the leading atheists of the day, even Harari is smart enough to admit evolution, even if it's true, even if evolution is true, uh, it cannot get us to love your neighbor or love your enemy or Black Lives Matter. Cannot get you to that. We, and, and Yuval Harari admits as an atheist, he's like, we got those great things from the Christianity, religious stories, he says. And Jesus followers agree, we just disagree with him. We think they're true. <laughs> and so we, we get to racial justice from Genesis 1. All humans are made in the image of God. That's how we get there. Naturalism can't get us there. And at the same time, we, we go to naturalism or we go to emotion, emotivism, right? Emotivism is looking to your heart, follow your heart, your feelings. On what, it just feels right. I just feel like this is so right. Or the Christian version, the Lord gave me a peace about it. You know, that's the Christian version. Uh, that doesn't get us a standard. That doesn't, I prayed about this or that. And the Lord spoke to me. That's not a standard of morality. Or we can see this in relationships. Yes, we're sleeping together, but we love each other and we plan on getting married. So it feels, that's emotivism. We're the first society in the history of earth to attempt life with no ultimate moral authority outside of humans. And we're learning the hard way it doesn't work. So we, along with billions of other individuals, follow Jesus. We follow Jesus, which means we follow Jesus's mental maps to reality. Think of like your phone maps. They need to be accurately reflecting the land you're in. We believe Jesus is due. And Jesus's mental maps, they come to us through the four gospels and the writings of the New Testament, and it's based on the inner life of the Trinity and the inner nature of the creator, and he's wired it into the universe. Jesus' maps get us to human flourishing. So we can say Jesus is our transcendent moral authority. The more we align our life to the teachings of Jesus, to his mental maps to reality, the more we flourish and thrive in relationship with God and his sacred order. And in scripture, here's the word for this. Holiness. That's the word for following Jesus' maps. Holiness. Holiness. 
right away. I know that word holiness comes with a lot of baggage for some of us. And you immediately go to fear or shame. But holiness is too important of a word to ditch. One of the most repeated commands in all of scripture is be holy as I am holy, God says. So my friends, Jesus' call to holiness is never condemning. It's not an accusation or shaming. Jesus' call to holiness is an invitation to flourish. To be holy is to be fully human. I'll say that again. To be holy is to be fully human. Jesus' moral authority, listen to this, he doesn't force his authority on anyone. He will judge the entire universe one day. But in this moment, he offers his authority freely. And we either trust him and receive it or trust ourselves and reject him. Holiness literally means set aside for a really good reason, a special purpose. Part of our problem with holiness, if you've grown up in the church, we've heard that concept, holiness, it's usually defined negatively, like separate from the bad stuff. Like be holy, stop doing this, don't do that, don't do that with them. Uh, but that's not the complete picture of holiness in the scriptures. In the scriptures, holiness isn't just about being separate from the bad, but being set aside for this really great reason for something life-giving to yourself and those you love. Even the pots and pans in Israel's temple were called holy. There were other pots and pans for eating, and then there were these holy pots and pans. It's not because they were like moral or more moral to eat off of. It's that they had a special purpose, like the special Christmas china that your grandma has in the cabinet thing. It's set aside. You're not gonna eat those in the summer, right? They're holy for a specific purpose. For followers of Jesus, holiness is both a gift God gives and a calling. It's a gift and a calling that he invites us into. Holiness is a gift because, you guys, when you come to Jesus and you're like, I admit my need for forgiveness and healing, in that moment, God says, holy, my beloved. I have purpose for you that lasts into the eternals, into eternity. And he gives us a loved identity as a child of God. The gift of purpose, holy, it's a gift. And it's also a calling, you gotta get both. It's a gift and a calling. We're called to follow Jesus's maps. We get the power of the spirit to journey where Jesus has walked and to bring our minds and bodies into alignment with Jesus's own thriving life, you guys, by, to quote Jesus, obeying everything I commanded you. This is why we're moving toward a rule of life. This is why we need a trellis together as a church. As we commit to the set of practices that come from Jesus, Jesus' mental maps to reality become ours over time. This is being made holy. We begin to see the world as it is, clearly. And we live in the world according to God's flourishing intent. So again, you guys, this invitation to holiness, it is a body-soul invitation. It's the whole you. You're not just a meat bag on sticks. You are a whole child of God. You're not just a wet machine. You are an integrated human being. 
And the whole you is called to this holiness. You are your body and your soul. I love what Mark Cortez says. You are an embodied soul and an ensouled body, both. Whole person. This means whatever you do with your body, food, sex, clothing, everything you do with your body, it all matters to God because it's all you. God loves the whole you. It's a special set-aside purpose for the whole you. And this is what Paul's getting at in the rest of our text. So we're gonna walk through it now, starting in verse 13. He quotes them again in their moral relativism, and he says, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. It's all gonna burn, or whatever, right? And he's like, he's like no, no, the belly's not just for pleasure. The belly's not just for gratification and nothing more. So you guys, moral relativism is not new. It's been around a long time. The ancient Corinthians, like most modern San Diegans, they thought, it doesn't matter what I do with my body, it's just a thing, a tool, that I can achieve my desire for sex. Um, It's no different than my body's desire for food or drink or sleep. They're all just urges. And Paul responds to this way of thinking with a four-point argument. Here it is. We'll read through, starting in verse 13. He says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he'll raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ, my body, and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it's said the two will become one flesh, but whoever's united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So track with Paul's logic, four points. Number one, the body's not meant for sexual immorality. And that word sexual morality, it's one word in Greek, very important. I don't often do Bible languages on Sundays. I don't think that's super helpful, but I actually think this one is pornea. Pornea in the New Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is always a junk drawer word for any sexual activity outside of a marriage covenant between two sexually different persons, a male and a female, in the story of Jesus, in the story of the scriptures. Pornea, again, is this junk drawer word, this catch-all word for all sex acts outside covenant marriage as defined by Jesus who stood with Moses on one man, one woman. That, that's very clear uh, from the whole body of scripture. And Paul says, our body, your body is not for pornea, but for the Lord, the King, Jesus. Meaning you're created body and soul for God. And good Catholic theology would even say that our sex drive is about way more than just our body's desire for that moment of orgasm, but our soul's desire for, like the sex drive isn't just for that climax. The sex drive is ultimately for a higher desire, which is communion and contribution, intimacy and family and belonging. And and not even marriage can satisfy that ache in full. Marriage doesn't satisfy all those aches. Only life in God and his community can. So so the first point, the body is not meant for sexual morality. The second point, Jesus came back from the dead in a body. Paul's building an argument here. Jesus came back from the dead in a body with arteries and veins and a nervous system 
and he's still in that body with arteries and veins, and it's inseparable from his personhood as God. And guess what? Since Jesus came back in a body, you will too. Our relationship to God happens in your body. It doesn't happen anywhere else. Your relationship with God doesn't happen in an idea or in a place in the morning or where you wake up and where you go in the wilderness and pray. Your relationship with God is always happening in your body. So your body matters. And then point three, he's like, your body is united with Jesus now. In the spirit realm, somehow, you and I, who are children of God by faith, we're one with Jesus and he's one with us. According to Paul, what you do in your body in San Diego, what you do, Jesus is doing through your embodied presence since we're members of his body, which leads to point four. Therefore, sex can't be just a biological act. It can't be. It's the mystical union of two souls. And that language from Paul is straight out of Genesis, right? The line about two becoming one flesh. So for all those reasons, Paul gives the command in verse 18, keep reading, he just says, flee from sexual immorality. Run for your life from the stuff. Why? Because the rest of the verse says, all the other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So according to the mental maps of Jesus and Paul, pornea, sexual morality, specifically sex acts with someone you are not married to according to Jesus, pornea dehumanizes and dishonors the body that God creates, loves, and has given infinite value and purpose for in his kingdom. Now listen, right now, I'm well aware of the many things that are bubbling up to the surface in your souls. And in our hyper-sexed society right now, virtually all of us, all of us, have felt the gravitational pull of pornea in some way. No one's exempt. We're all embodied here. Whether it's through a website or other literature or Tinder or hookup culture or that one night after that glass of wine or through mentally objectifying that fellow image bearer of God for your own momentary pleasure, whatever it is, we're all in this boat. All of us are in this boat. Because again, we're all embodied beings. Complicated mixture of sexual beauty and brokenness, all of us, all of us. And as we come together here around the physical body, which is broken, of Jesus for us. As we gather around his body, we get cleansed, we receive restoration. There's tons of space for forgiveness. So whatever your sexual past, whatever, or any questions or confusion around sexuality or gender that you may have in the present, whatever it may be, this gathering, this house, is not a place of condemnation. It's a place of restoration. My wife had a word this morning during pre-gathering prayer that this basically is a house where shame comes to die. And may this be true for you in every way imaginable 
especially, particularly, when it comes to something as intimate as sexuality and questions around gender. Welcome to the house of Jesus, you guys. This is the house where shame comes to die, at the cross. It's the house where holiness becomes the shared joy of our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul emphasizes it's a gift. Remember, it's a gift, holiness. It's a gift that your body gets to be the unique dwelling of God in the world. Look at the final verses of our text. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you? God is in you. You've received the Spirit from God. You're not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. How many of you have heard that phrase, your body's a temple? Your body's a temple of the Spirit or whatever, yeah. Not many people, including myself, for most of my life growing up in the church, I didn't realize that phrase comes from a passage specifically about sex. And, and even more specifically, why marriage is the only thing strong enough to contain the raw nuclear force of sex. It's about this, te this temple, your body's a temple, it's all in this, this conversation, you guys. Think about the act of sex. It empowers and deepens the covenant marriage between a husband and a wife, and that same power, that same nuclear energy that empowers and deepens a covenant in the, in, in the wrong container, outside of the container, it becomes a failed nuclear reactor and to tear yourself and your loved ones apart in ways you never would want. This is why Paul says, run. Like, run from sexual morality. Why? Because God is in your body. Your body is heaven's temple on earth. In the ancient world, a temple is a place of overlap between the unseen and seen realms. Between heaven and earth, the temple is where they meet. They're a reflection of God's own throne room where he rules from. And so now, under the new covenant, we're the people of God in the church now, after the Holy Spirit has come. And now our body, not just the church body, but your physical body becomes the temple the overlap point between the unseen and the seen realms. It's a holy site. You are a holy site, you guys, in earth. You're the place of God's presence. And so the call is to let God rule in your bodies as he does in heaven. We pray that. Our church vision that Park Hill would be in San Diego as it is in heaven, God's will would be done. We can get even, we can zoom in even further and say, in my body as it is in heaven. So hence the last line, Paul says, honor God with your bodies. This is his argument, you guys. There's lots of ways we honor God, tons of ways. But according to Paul, one of the most important ways we honor God is through our sexuality. And again, I just wanna be as sensitive as I can. I realize this is tender, very tender conversation around sex and gender, and that many of us are genuinely wrestling with deep questions, what we even believe about this. Because of who we believe we are or who we love, as far as our friends that are going through questions themselves and don't feel safe to even come. Recently got an email, my friends are trying to figure out if they're feeling safe to come, are they safe? This is a big question that the that culture looking on is asking the people of God. and and. I wanna remind everyone, I believe, our leadership team believes in unity. We believe 
that the church should be the safest place on earth to come out. The safest place on earth to bring your LGBT friends and family to explore the historic way of Jesus in a context of listening and trust. Church hasn't historically been seen as that safe place. And I'm so sorry for that. The body of Christ should be the safest place in the world to talk about our bodies. At the same time, sexuality has always been one of the areas where Jesus followers are most different from the world. That's, that's always been the case too. It's also one of the areas we pray where we function as a countercultural signpost to the thriving life of Jesus, a compelling vision. We're supposed to live as a compelling vision, not a condemning vision. So what would that look like? What would it mean to become a community of holiness, specifically in the area of sexuality and belonging? Just a quick sketch. I believe this would mean becoming a community where men and women refrain from sex before marriage in order to represent the patience and love of Christ for his church. A community where men and women seek a marriage partner not on the basis of looks or wealth, but character. A community where the unmarried, whether divorced, widowed, or never married, are included and incorporated as extended family members, having close friendships of both sexes and nurturing relationships with kids. This would also mean becoming a community where LGBTQ slash same-sex attracted individuals are equally valued members and leaders, are called brother and sister, are empowered in the unique gifts they bring to the body of Christ, and are given support for their calling to either celibacy or mixed orientation marriage. I realize there's a whole conference we could do on that paragraph alone. So I pray you hear that with grace and ask any questions you want pastorally. This would also mean becoming a community where people who struggle with gender, experiences around their own gender, are fully welcomed and listened to with humility, patience, and love. This is the vision, you guys, of Jesus, all within the teachings of Jesus, of historic marriage. This is the kind of community we can be. And we can, again, nuance every point out for an hour, so interpret that graciously. And as always, we wanna become a community where these things are discussed in the context of safety and trust. Paul's overall point here in 1 Corinthians 6, when it comes to sexuality, we are called to honor God with our whole person, not our person in our mind with our bodies as a tool, but your body, soul, personhood. This applies not just to who we sleep with, although that's what Paul focuses on, but also to our food and our money, our power, how we steward our influence online or in person in the workplace, what we say about people when they're not in our presence, all of life. Holiness is an all of life thing. Now to bring this full circle, how do we get there? How do we get to this? Is there a practice is there something we can embrace as a community, maybe from our rule of life, that can orient us away from moral relativism, follow your heart as the baseline, no, there's something deeper, toward Jesus' mental maps? What can we do? There are many things we can do that come from Jesus, but at the top of that list is 
fasting. I don't know if you remember that I said this was a three, like a three sermons in one, but, but fasting. Fasting is when you go without food to give your whole person more fully over to God. Fasting is a body-mind practice. It's a way of saying yes to Jesus' work in your soul, not just through agreeing in your mind, but through your guts. For over a millennium, basically until the year 1700, when the Enlightenment separated the mind from the body in sociology, and we thought we were brains on sticks, before that, there was a much more integrated view of the whole human person, and fasting was way more central in the church. For over a millennium, fasting was core to Jesus' followers. Most Christians would fast two times a week, two days a week, always. Wednesdays and Fridays until dinner. I don't know if you knew that. John Wesley, he said it like this in the 1700s. <laughs> Little intense, but he says, I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, both in England and in Ireland, who following the same bad example have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week that they do not fast twice in the month. You know who you are, you guys. <laughs> he went on to say, the man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man who never prays. Put prayer and fasting on the same level. I'm not saying he's right, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm not saying he's like Jesus, John Wesley, he's just John Wesley. But I'm saying, we've come a long way. That's all I'm saying. We've come a long way. Very few Christians fast regularly. And yet, when you look at history and when you look at the Bible, we believe this is one of the most important practices of Jesus for our time. So for those of you who are new to fasting, maybe for spiritual reasons, maybe you fasted intermittently for dietary reasons, which is different, um, here's some resources. The best book on fasting out there, in my opinion, hands down, God's Chosen Fast by Arthur Wallace. Highly recommend you pick it up. He journals his 21-day fast in detail and tells you what he feels in his body and how he hears God's voice and all of that. It's a profound read. And then Fasting by Scott McKnight. Great little primer. And as, as we hit the final back, the, the last third of this sermon, the first thing I wanna say about fasting, I always wanna say this, it's a disclaimer. Please consult your doctor before you fast. Some health conditions, including mental health conditions, should absolutely keep you from fasting. You should not fast. Now, I want to be crystal clear. Don't fast with an eating disorder unless you're doing it together with your doctor and your authentic spiritual community. In many cases, it's great to consider abstaining from something else, TV or social media for a month or whatever instead, if that's a health issue for you. Okay, so right now, some of you are like, this sermon is a roller coaster. <laughs> Where are you taking us? What is going on? Um, it's about sex and holiness, moral relativism, cultural critique, and now food, fasting. Yes, Here, here's why. Here's why they're all connected. Why fast? Three simple reasons. Number one, starve the flesh and feed the spirit. That's why. To starve the flesh, your whole person feeds the spirit. The flesh, if you're around Christians very long, you'll hear maybe that word if you read the New Testament. It's the New Testament word for that animal part of your body, that primal survival instinct and desire for pleasure. Some scientists call it your animal brain, right? Your flesh is that beast inside you with very simple mechanism. Feed it, it gets stronger. Starve it, it loses hold on you. Very simple. 
And one of the best ways to starve your base animal instincts is to literally not give your body literal food. Again, this goes back before Jesus. Jesus did this regularly. He didn't say, if you fast, he said, when you fast. For some of us, that's not even a concept in our lives. So uh, one of the best ways to starve your flesh, yes. Think about the two biggest temptation scenes in the Bible. What are they? The two biggest temptation scenes. Famous, very famous. First one, shout it out. I can't even understand. I heard like eight different scenes. Um, Sorry, one scene. Eve, Adam, Eve, Garden of Eden, right, tempted with, yes. And then what's the other one? With Jesus. Yeah, what's one, Garden of Eden, Jesus in the wilderness, what's one thing they both had in common? Food, good, actual food. This is why for centuries, Jesus followers have made a connection. They've connected our self-discipline with food and our self-discipline with sin. They're connected. They ebb and flow together. So the less you limit your appetite, the less you tend to limit your other appetites. Whether that's sex or shopping or gossip or even violence. One of the first things you notice when you start fasting, your desire for sin doesn't just go away, but it does go down. And your desire for God goes up. You feel that, you feel that tummy rumble, and you're like, oh God, thank you for your presence. You're reminded of whose you are. So the second way, the second reason um, we fast is, number two, to amplify our prayer. To amplify our prayer. Fasting is a way of praying with your body. I love what Scott McKnight says. Fasting is the body talking what the spirit yearns, what the soul longs for, and what the mind knows to be true. I love that. Fasting is body talk with God. Powerful concepts. Like, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I really want to stop acting that way. I want to be more self-control in this area of food or how I run my mouth or how I keep getting in trouble in this. I just want to get this under control. Hello, fasting. This is the ancient practice. It's an ancient path from Jesus for growing in the power of the Spirit. And then finally, number three, we fast to stand with the poor in solidarity together. This goes back to Isaiah in the Old Testament, you guys. The fast God chooses should end up in justice for the poor and the marginalized. And and practically, what the idea was, you take the 50 bucks you would have spent on food in those couple days, and you give it to someone without food. That's the ancient idea behind fasting. It's supposed to benefit those who you love, yourself, and beyond. And so here's our practice for the week ahead. We're doing a practice every week, incorporating it, incorporating it into our communities, into our lives. It's, it's fasting, you guys. And the baseline practice of fasting, we, we want you as leaders, we want you to work toward the baseline, a weekly fast. We'd love for you to work toward a weekly fast. From dinner to dinner, basically. It's like 24, 20 to 24-ish hours. This is my personal rhythm. I generally fast every Wednesday. So along with a group of pastor friends that I journey with for a couple years, I've been doing this. I eat dinner Tuesday, I go to bed full, and then I don't eat again until dinner Wednesday. It's actually not that hard. Uh, Some of you are like, that's what I do anyways. Um, 
a dinner Tuesday, but intentionally throughout the morning and noon and afternoon, I commune with God. That's also usually my sermon prep day. So I'm in this fasted state. You can totally do this. A simple way of saying yes to Jesus with your gut. Body talk with God, not just with your head. Remember, as with all the practices, we have to keep the end goal in mind, and that's to experience delight, to delight in God. You guys, none of this is to earn status with God or to become more saved or to become more Christian. None of this is for, none of the practices are, that would be legalism. That is legalism. Calling Christians to be like Jesus is not legalism. (laughs) Calling people who claim to follow Jesus to follow Jesus practically is not legalism. But to say you are not where God sees you, to to, to violate the identity God proclaims over you as beloved daughter or son, you have to fast in order to be loved. Legalism, demonic, get that out. So, So we're not calling you, we're calling you to delight, not earn, but to delight in the presence of God for what he has already declared over you. Richard Foster said it this way, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. It's a gift to see what control, why am I acting that, well, fasting will show you, has a way of showing you. Man, that really came out in anger or bitterness on my fasting day, boom. There's the light of the Holy Spirit on your inner world. The gift of fasting, it also teaches you to be happy even when you don't have what you want. You want food? God calls you to contentment. Oh yeah, that's a muscle. I gotta work out with Jesus. Fasting is feeding on deep joy from the one source that can never be taken from you. That's God. So that's our motivation, not just for fasting, but for singing, for coming to the table, for doing the hard conversations in community that we do every week, for giving in generosity, for opening up your homes to the stranger. All of that is motivated. Our desire for holiness is motivated by Jesus as Lord, deeper surrender to Jesus as Lord. Jesus, I ache for you. I ache for more of your presence in my life. You are my delight. You are my joy. Become more of my joy. I give my body to you, God, to delight in you, not to earn more favor that you've already proclaimed, but to delight. You are my God. This is the goal. This is the kind of community we're called to become. Let's all stand together. We're gonna move into a time of song and prayer. For the next 15 minutes, the last part of the gathering, you guys... We're gonna end feasting, not fasting. Feasting on the body and blood of Jesus. But before we do, I know that a teaching like this, I don't think it's even a, it's not even a guess. I know that a teaching like this stirred up all kinds of junk and feelings and questions and what do I do now, God? A teaching on sexuality and holiness can be heavy. So I believe that the Spirit of God wants to free many to receive healing, to receive the truth that you are not defiled, you are clean in the family of Jesus. You are not guilt-ridden beyond repair. You are called to bring your guilt and shame to die with Jesus today and to receive full forgiveness. And so um, 
As Drew leads us in a song, I just wanna invite any community leaders, any, any leaders to come forward on the right and the left and be available for prayer. They'll pray for you. They're there for you. I assure you, these people are trusted, safe individuals with zero judgment and tons of respect for you, for wherever you are in your journey with Jesus. So the, th the three invitations for prayer, three things. Number one, I know there are some here who need to realign your morality. Maybe you've been going off naturalism or your own emotions, it just feels right. And you need to repent, to use the Bible word. Allow Jesus to change your thinking, to give you his maps. And if that's you, the invitation is to come forward and just repent and say, I want Jesus's way to change my mind. And Peter in Acts 3 says, that's repentance that leads to refreshment. Refreshment. And then the second invitation is for those who want power from the Spirit to live in holiness. I just want a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. I want the presence of God to propel me into the church, into the world and be a blessing. I want his power to overcome various obstacles that have been getting you down. He offers his power to those who ask. This is what Jesus said his father does. He gives the Holy Spirit. And then the third invitation is for anyone who wants a clear direction on how to, how to begin the journey of fasting, how to bring fasting into your week, how to bring it into your life with your community. Just, just receive prayer. Holy Spirit, would you show me how to step into this way of following you? Um, and I, I'm sure all of us could receive prayer for that. But again, repentance and power, and fat, all these things, come forward for prayer. And then in the last few minutes, we're gonna eat and drink. But first, let's just pray. Let's just treat this like a house of prayer Jesus wants it to be. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you shape us into the kinds of people you see us becoming? You died for our sins. Who are we to hide our sins from you when you died to get rid of them? You died to forgive them. We bring our whole person, body, mind, soul, spirit, our energy, our money, our power, our sex, our cravings, our relationships, everything to you. Have your way. Come, Holy Spirit. So feel free right now just to come forward and receive prayer from these trusted individuals, and we'll see what God does.